You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loinin, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. This is episode 159, A Sea Highwayman. Immediately before the arrival of European colonists in the form of the Pilgrims, the Patuxet Indian tribe lived on Massachusetts Bay, very near where Plymouth would eventually be founded. The Patuxet belonged to the Wampanoag Confederation, a coalition of tribes that largely spoke the Massachusett language, a subgroup of the greater Algonquin language family. You can see why I want to try to avoid too much of this. It gets complex, and I'm just leagues from qualified to talk about any of this stuff. But the Patuxet are worth a special note. The Wampanoag Coalition was formed to counter incursions from the Iroquois Confederation, If I had the expertise, the Iroquois Confederation is something really worth talking about. It was a relatively new coalition of Mohawk and Huron and Cree peoples, among others, and the Iroquois were something of an existential threat to the Algonquins, especially in the Northeast. I, well, I have an analogy that I really, really don't like to use, mostly because it makes me admit things about myself I'd care not to, but it fits. In Star Wars, in the old extended universe canon, in the old Star Wars novels, there was an invasion from another galaxy that very nearly destroyed the New Republic. They had, in their armada, sentient planets that could cause untold devastation. Emperor Palpatine, who was dead by that point, could see the future, and he forged his galaxy into a unified empire that built, you know, planet-killing weapons. The theory is that Palpatine intended to defend against this imminent existential threat. And in the late 1500s, in the real world, the Iroquois forged a confederation shortly after first coming into contact with European colonists. And I don't know this to be certain, but it's almost as if they were trying to forge their world into a unified force to resist the threat that was coming. Now, they 
probably would have failed anyway. The disease and technological disparities would have seen to that, but it would have given them a better fighting chance. But the Wampanoag Confederation, much like the plucky rebels in Star Wars, fought them. And by 1610, the war between these two confederations was contentious and raging. Now, most of the warriors that belonged to the Patuxet people were stationed on the front lines. And I should note a couple of things here. The Mohawk people in the Iroquois Confederation were not the same people as the Mohican people. The Mohican people fought on the Wampanoag side of the coalition against the Mohawk. In fact, most of the Patuxet warriors were fighting on the border between the Mohawk and Mohican peoples. This was a major conflict, and it would continue on for decades and decades, and it's going to form the backdrop for much of our story, at least that that takes place in North America. But on that same note, we also shouldn't confuse the Patuxet people with the Patuxent people down near Jamestown. They are different peoples, but that was a common misconception at the time, largely due to the confusion of one man, John Smith. The same John Smith that founded, or helped found, Jamestown and Virginia. He was among the first Europeans to make contact with the Patuxent and Patuxet peoples, and he believed them to be either the same people or at least very closely related. On that voyage, on which John Smith met the Patuxet people in the Northeast, he coined the name New England. Now, he originally intended this to include Virginia and all of England's colonies in America, as we discussed last time, but that didn't catch on. Except in, of course, what we call New England today. Now, John Smith, after his initial voyage, left the region intending to come back and establish a colony very near those friendly Patuxet people. And he did so, but when he returned to America, every last Patuxet person in America was already dead. In fact, there was only one member of that tribe still alive. See, after John Smith left the New England region, one of his rivals attacked the Patuxet and captured several of them to sell back in Europe. But these Native Americans were sold mostly in Spain in this case, to serve as a sort of curio, living exhibits of American savages that could be bedecked and tattooed in the wildest fashions imaginable and paraded around all the courts of Europe. And while they were slaves, it was more like the ancient Roman system. They were allowed to craft and sell their own wares to accept tips for performance, and eventually to buy their own freedom. One of those Patuxet natives sold into slavery was a young man named Tisquantum, who we would know better as Squanto. Squanto earned his freedom after a few years of slavery and sailed for England, and then in 1619 he booked passage back to America. But when he arrived back home, he found his entire village empty. Everyone was dead. But it wasn't warfare. It was a plague. It was probably smallpox, although there are other theories what it might have been, and it probably came from John Smith's expedition. And it swept through the Northeast, but hit the Wampanoag Coalition especially hard, and the Patuxet people, except for Squanto, were entirely wiped out. 
Just about a year later, the Pilgrims made their first landing at what would come to be called Provincetown, at the tip of Cape Cod. And then they sailed over to where these friendly Patuxet people were supposed to be located. Thanks to John Smith, they had pretty decent maps of the region, but of course they found their village abandoned. That village, on the western coast of Cape Cod Bay, became the site of their settlement at Plymouth. And, by the way, Cape Cod Bay is one of the English colonies we mentioned last time in the running to be dubbed the most important piratical location in North America, alongside Carolina. And when the closest tribe to this newly founded settlement realized that there were a bunch of English people living over there, they decided to send an emissary, and there was only one real candidate. Squanto spoke both their own Massachusetts language and English fluently, and he knew the English people. And that story is obviously amazing. You know, it's fraught with peril and backstabbing and double dealings, and not all of it on the part of the English. The story is a ton of fun, but it would take an entire episode just to scratch the surface of. Suffice it to say, though, Squanto was, at these early stages, at the heart of everything, and he played both sides against the middle to benefit himself a lot of times. There was tension at first, and it almost broke into open fighting, but Squanto negotiated the sale of that land to the pilgrims and eventually an alliance, a trade alliance at first. And all of that drama culminates in Thanksgiving, the feast at which they celebrated their new alliance. And then, for a few years, all appeared to be well, until we catch up to where we left off, with the arrival of the Massachusetts Bay colonists and their settlements in, primarily at first, Boston and Salem. The Great Migration of... 20,000 colonists into the Massachusetts Bay Colony destabilized all of the politics in the region, and it overshadowed not only the Native Americans but every other colonial venture in North America, including even New Netherland and Quebec. In eastern North America, you know, Mexico City and if you include it Havana are pretty big deals, but if we exclude the Spanish, Massachusetts is it. To understand what's to come, we should talk a little bit about the geography of the region and introduce a couple of Native American peoples. Take a look at a map of New England, and I'll throw up some relevant maps on the website, both of colonial boundaries at the time and of the modern state boundaries. But we're going to be using those state boundaries to discuss regions. We'll understand it better that way. You've got Cape Cod, that pirate hook hanging off the side of America, which is of course the home to the pilgrims in Plymouth. And then if you look at the rest of Massachusetts, that is roughly analogous to what the Massachusetts Bay Colony effectively controlled at the time. But then to the west of Cape Cod and to the south of mainland Massachusetts, you have what is today Rhode Island, but at the time was the home of the Narragansett people who, you know, live on Narragansett Bay. And immediately to the west of modern Rhode Island, we have the state or the territory of Connecticut. Now, at the time, Connecticut didn't exist in any political sense whatsoever, but it was home to two tribes who are very closely related to the Mohican people. This is what I was trying to avoid, but I can't see any good way around it, so I'm going to jump in. 
The Mohican people lived along the Hudson River, up near Fort Orange, or modern-day Albany, in what was at the time New Netherland. And then a splinter group of the Mohican people traveled down the Hudson River and migrated over into modern-day Connecticut, on the coast of Long Island Sound. Now, we know those people as the Pico people, but that may or may not have been what they were called at the time. They might have just called themselves the Mohican. But you see, that group, the Pico, split once again into two smaller groups. One called the Pico, and the other called the Mohegan, who are not the Mohican people, but very closely related. So up near Albany, on the Hudson River, the Mohican people. Down to the south, you have the Pico people, and to the west of the Pico, you have the Mohegan people. The first thing you may notice is that they lived in between the English colonies on Massachusetts Bay and the Dutch colony in New Netherland. And that's a dangerous place to find yourself when your new gun-toting neighbors have expansion on their mind. Now, at first, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was on good terms with all of them, but it soon became clear that if they intended to continue expanding, and they did, they would have to expand into Native American territory that they weren't willing to sell. And among those three peoples, there was one very obvious target. The Pico people were enemies of the Mohican people, from whom they had split. They were enemies of the Mohegan people, who had split from them. They were enemies of the Narragansett and the entire Wampanoag coalition. And, in fact, the only people that they were not enemies of in the region were the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And then, one of them killed a Massachusetts colonist. This act was decried at every pulpit and by every pastor in Massachusetts. The people were up in arms about this murder, and their governor, Henry Vane, roused a militia. And, as a side note, I would love, love, love to tell you that there was any kind of connection between Henry Vane and Charles Vane. And it's not necessarily 100% out of the realm of possibility that Henry Vane's son slept with a, you know, a chambermaid or a tavern wench who gave birth to an illegitimate son that would go on to be Charles Vane, infamous pirate. Now, that didn't happen, but if you want to pretend it did in your own headcanon, I mean, who am I to stop you? But Henry Vane roused that militia and embarked on a war called the Pico War which was a brutal affair. Now, the Pico people did have a few initial successes, mostly in raids against their tribal enemies, but as soon as the English got really involved, they just, well, they just massacred them. Sometimes in fair battles, you know, as fair as a battle between bows and muskets can be, but sometimes the English just massacred them in good old-fashioned exterminations, on one occasion during a religious festival in which the women and children were the target. Now, during the Pico War, a new governor was elected, a man named John Winthrop the Elder. But it's his son, John Winthrop the Younger, who really concerns us at first. The younger Winthrop went on to establish the first of the New England colonies to break away from Massachusetts. Some of the colonies we're going to mention today were established over 
legitimate differences in theological or legal ideology. And we'll get to those. But this first colony, the Saybrook colony, founded by the governor's son, well, while it looked like it was founded under legitimate differences of opinion, I don't think that's the case. In 1635, John Winthrop the Younger traveled down the Connecticut River to her outlet in the Long Island Sound, right in the middle of lands that belonged to the Pico people. And he began construction of an honestly impressive fort, Fort Saybrook. This fort would prove to be invaluable in the Pico War that was to come, and it may be why he chose that location, but it's not why he built it in the first place. See, at this moment, back in England, there was this relatively little-known fringe Puritan parliamentarian who was in hot water with the king. He was named, um, Oliver Cromwell. Now, John Winthrop the Younger was a devotee of Oliver Cromwell, and he established Saybrook, both the colony and the fort, to welcome Cromwell to America. It was to be Cromwell's home. But as it turned out, Cromwell didn't flee to America. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of the war, the Pico people, what remained of them, fled into the Iroquois Confederation to live among the Mohawk people. Which means, well, would you look at that? Just a bunch of land sitting there, all empty. Now, it's not the best land, agriculturally speaking, but the land along Long Island Sound was, tactically, valuable. It had good outlets to the sea and threatened the territory of Dutch New Netherland. However, Saybrook wasn't going to last. There is no state of Saybrook these days. But there are two modern-day states in the U.S., that were founded here in the 1630s based upon those ideological differences I mentioned. Now, last time we pointed at some of the differences in the kind of Puritans that colonized Plymouth and Massachusetts. 
the witch-burners versus the freedom-of-religion Puritans, but we ignored the most important differences. In the Massachusetts Bay Colony, in order to vote, and they did vote, but in order to do so, you had to be white and you had to be male. That goes without saying. You also had to own land, though, and, you know, that's not unheard of. It's despicable, yeah, but it was really the norm until the French Revolution, and even the later radical parts of the French Revolution. But what sets Massachusetts apart, especially in their voting, was their religious purity test. John Winthrop the Elder, in fact all of the senior leadership in Massachusetts, were really, really Puritan. And we would expect them to require their voting populace to be Puritan as well. And they did. But being Puritan only got you through the door. See, they were also rich and influential Puritans. And they were unwilling to risk that. So you had to be Puritan, but you also had to swear the requisite oaths not to undermine either the Anglican Church or the King. And make no mistake, the Massachusetts government did not like the King or the Church, but they weren't here for a revolution. They were here to make money and to establish a secure and long-lasting colony that would be friendly to future Puritans. And that means following the rules, following the letter of the law, not making any waves that may get their charter revoked. But that purity test led to a series of divisions among people in Massachusetts. People who did not subscribe to the doctrine of the church in Boston. The next colony to separate from Massachusetts control was founded by one of my favorite early Americans, Roger Williams. Now, he was a Puritan minister, but the kind of Puritan I can get behind, at least a bit. He was a staunch advocate for the separation of church and state, as well as the freedom of religion and the abolition of slavery. Beyond that, he was very well educated. He spoke English and French and Dutch and Latin and Greek and I think Hebrew, and he wrote the very first book on the Narragansett language. Williams was also an advocate for what he called liberty of conscience, what the church fathers in Boston called new and dangerous ideas. In particular, that liberty of conscience meant that Williams believed that the Puritan faith should be separated from the Church of England. Also, in his view, King Charles was, at this point, in dereliction of duty and liable to be removed. Now, these were dangerous ideas, ideas that the fathers in Boston could not accept, although they would become standard ideas in less than five years or so. But at the time, they were revolutionary, and John Winthrop the Elder didn't like them. Roger Williams also argued, notably, that Massachusetts' policies toward the Native American peoples, namely stealing their land and failing to pay them a fair price, were immoral. They were sinful and unacceptable. John Winthrop the Elder really didn't like that. The government of Massachusetts attempted to seize Roger Williams and deport him back to England, but Williams gave them the slip. It was the middle of winter and quite snowy, but Williams marched over 50 miles to a Narragansett village where he took shelter, and Williams negotiated a fair and equitable purchase of what would prove to be one of my favorite colonies. 
Rhode Island. Small, stubborn, contrarian, principled, I identify with Rhode Island. However, to be accurate, Roger Williams did not found Rhode Island. He founded a colony called the Providence Plantations at what would become Providence, Rhode Island. Other, later, also pretty crazy settlers would establish a colony on the actual island that was called Rhode Island at the time, and the capital there called Newport. Newport is another one of those locales like Cape Cod and Carolina that will become extremely important to our story of pirates. And I wanted to get to all of those locations today, but I don't think I'm going to. I realize that I haven't talked much about Boston and Massachusetts proper, and I haven't even mentioned New Haven and Connecticut. We're going to put that off until next time, I think. Really, they're going to become a lot more relevant in our story next time. And I want to tell another story today. I want to shift focus to Maine. And the first New England pirate, Dixie Bull. Dixie Bull is a reasonable example of a typical New England colonist. You know, we often hear the stories of the pilgrims or the Puritan leadership in New England, but they aren't really representative of the average colonists. Those draconian purity tests in Massachusetts were intended to keep most of the people from voting. But Dixie Bull, at least until he turned to piracy, is very representative of a more average sort of colonist. His story begins in England, and really it begins with a war hero named Sir Ferdinando Jorge. And I assure you, Ferdinando Jorge is English. He was a nobleman in Plymouth and commanded an infantry regiment in the Anglo-Spanish War back in 1588 at the time of the Spanish Armada. In the years following the war, he became interested in North American colonization and invested, in a minor fashion, in a few of the colonies we've talked about so far. Dixie Bull, though, was born in Plymouth as well, and he was apprenticed as a skinner to his brother named Seth Bull. Once that initial apprenticeship was up, Dixie Bull indentured himself. He sold himself into indentured servitude to the Worshipful Company of Skinners. The Worshipful Company of Skinners was a grandiose name for a merchant company based in London, but with a chapter house in Plymouth, that traded in fur and skin and leathers, hence Skinner. Professionally, Dixie Bull was a fur trader, which was a relatively modest profession. That is, until the American fur trade showed up and proved to be very lucrative. Beaver pelts were making some people very rich. That's why Dixie Bull indentured himself. The worshipful company of Skinners had the ability to get him to America. They sold him to Sir Ferdinando Jorge, who was planning an expedition to the New World to establish a fur trading operation. Sir Ferdinando and the governor of English Newfoundland acquired a patent to establish the province of Maine. Their patent, from the Council of New England, would establish the province of Maine as part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It would be at least under the governor's discretion. They sent an agent of theirs named Christopher Levitt to establish a town called Falmouth, which actually isn't the location of modern-day Falmouth. It's closer to where Portland, Maine is today. 
But that initial colony failed. However, Levitt would go on to try again, granted land that would eventually become New Hampshire. Again, we'll talk about that next time. For now, we need to talk about the other major settlements in Maine, the relevant settlements in Maine. In 1628, they established a fur trading post on the site of modern-day Bristol called Pimaquid. That same year, the English capture the oldest permanent settlement in New England, a French fortification called Fort Pentagouet. Those two locations, Pimaquid and Fort Pentagouet, served as the center of the beaver pelt operation in North America for the time being. By 1632, Dixie Bull was the captain of his own bark that sailed between Pimaquid and Fort Pentagouet and Boston and even back to Plymouth in England, and he traded almost exclusively in beaver pelts. Now, he was still indentured to Sir Ferdinando, but he was making a reasonable living, on track to buy his way out of his servitude. And in June of 1632, Dixie Bull was at Fort Pentagouet, with a haul full of beaver pelts that he intended to sell in Boston. And it was right then that a French fleet arrived and attacked. Now, the problem with the story of Dixie Bull is a lack of good primary sources. He wasn't the sort of man to keep a diary, for example, so we don't know much about his motivations or, indeed, much about his actions. But we do have some colonial records and even a number of older secondary sources. There's two of note here. George Francis Dow's 1923 work, The Pirates of the New England Coast, and Edward Rose Snow's 1944 history, Pirates and Buccaneers of the Atlantic Coast. There are other, less reputable sources which we're going to exclude that all just seem to sort of plagiarize the colonial sources and those two works. But from those very few scant sources we have a rough outline from which to work. That French attack in June of 1632 captured all of Dixie Bull's cargo, all of his beaver pelts. However, they didn't capture his ship. So Dixie Bull sailed to Boston, where, according to John Winthrop the Elder, he recruited, quote, 15 more who kept about the East, end quote. That is to say, Cape Cod men who at least in Winthrop's view, were a disreputable sort of character. And with 15 additional men added to his crew, Dixie Bull... Well, we don't know why he did what he did here. We know that he was out a great deal of money, perhaps even enough to buy his freedom. But I'll give two separate accounts. Edward Snow writes, quote, Without question, Dixie Bull tried manfully to get revenge on the French pirates who had descended on both the Pilgrim trading post and his own little chaloupe. End quote. Okay, I love this book. It was written in that sweet spot in mid-century America where the language is modern enough to understand. I mean, he did write manfully with a straight face, but it is easy to comprehend But before publishers began asking those pesky questions like, did you just make that up? But everything that he says here is wrong. First of all, Snow describes a raid on a trading post by a bunch of French pirates attacking a band of pilgrims. Prior to that, he had told this 
fanciful story about the French pirates affecting a Scottish accent and telling these pilgrims that they were lost. They were then invited ashore to capture their trading post, which was only guarded by four men despite having rooms chock full of guns. It's a fine story, but it's not corroborated anywhere else. And then, as you could tell by my sarcastic tone, he gets basically all the facts wrong. That Pilgrim Trading Post was a former French fort that was captured by not pilgrims, but English fur traders. So we shouldn't trust him at all, but I'm going to continue to refer to him when it pleases me. But more shocking than any of those other complete fabrications is that he says Dixie Bull tried to get revenge on the French without question. And there are a ton of questions about whether or not Dixie Bull, in fact, tried to get revenge on the French. George Francis Dow in The Pirates of the New England Coast writes, quote, Bull sailed along the coast in the late summer, hoping to fall in with some Frenchman and retrieve his losses. But the French kept out of sight and, badly in need of supplies, Bull took and plundered two or three small vessels owned by English colonial traders and from them forced four or five men to join his company. End quote. They both claim that Dixie Bull intended to recoup his losses from the French, but he never attacked a single French ship. Instead, he attacked exclusively the English. And all of the authors who write about Dixie Bull, from George Francis Dow to Edward Snow to those less reputable writers, they all have their own... Francophobic, Anglophile, maybe kind of racist explanations for why he did what he did. He was going hungry, maybe, or maybe he was duped by the Scottish accent, or maybe he wasn't really in command at all. Maybe this good, God-fearing Englishman was actually captured by the French pirates and used as a patsy to take the blame. They all have explanations, but none of them really know. The governor of Massachusetts himself didn't know. The victims who suffered the attentions of Dixie Bull didn't know. Nobody knows why Dixie Bull did what he did. But everybody knows that his next act of piracy would forever stain him as Edward Snow says so beautifully, a sea highwayman. Dixie Bull sailed on Pimiquid, the other settlement in Maine, the actual fur trading post, a location where he was well known. He went ashore without anybody questioning him. But then his crew of pirates pulled their weapons and held the town hostage. They loaded their ship up with furs and food and drink and even a small bit of silver that they found. Exactly how much they found is disputed, but if we take the middle path and the most commonly quoted amount, about 500 pounds sterling. The inhabitants, all throughout this event, were shocked. These men, stealing from them, holding them at gunpoint, were Englishmen. Then, with their ship filled to the brim, Dixie Bull and his men got on board and prepared to leave. Pirates and buccaneers of the Atlantic coast says, quote, The stunned defenders sent a parting volley out toward the pirate ship, just as the ruffians weighed anchor to sail off with their booty. End quote. But that parting shot, we can actually verify this, it struck and killed the first mate of Dixie Bull's ship. 
and this death, well, it appalled the pirates on board. Most of them weren't really pirates, just ruffians. Most of them had never seen any form of combat before, and some of them had never seen anyone die. We can verify that story, though, because a few days later, Dixie Bull captured another ship, another English ship. A merchant in this case who, when Dixie Bull was done with him, sailed on to Boston. That merchant brought all the news of Bull's piracy to the governor's attention, and he told the people of Boston that these pirates were in shock at having seen one of their number die. Now that merchant says that Dixie Bull and his men didn't steal anything from him. What they were after was a pilot, someone that could guide them down to Virginia, a colony that, according to George Dow, was, quote, a nest of rogues, whores, dissolute and rooking persons, end quote. However, no one on board that merchant ship knew the way to Virginia, or at least they convinced the pirates they didn't. And that's the end of what we can reliably say about Dixie Bull. Now, a ton of myths and legends grew up around him. There were ballads and odes written to this nefarious pirate, to this dread New England pirate. There were at least three locations where, reportedly, Dixie Bull buried his treasure. And the amount of treasure reportedly buried was, well, it was logistically impossible. He didn't steal enough treasure to equal that amount. Not nearly enough silver, there probably wasn't enough silver in all of New England to match those reports, and frankly, I don't think beaver pelts do that well when buried offshore. Naturally, none of them have ever been found. And rumors of Dixie Bull persisted for many years, he appeared in Virginia, Carolina, even the Caribbean. But Captain Roger Clapp, who was the leader of a flotilla sent to apprehend Dixie Bill immediately after his raid on Pimaquet, said that, quote, Bull got to England, but God destroyed this wretched man, end quote. And Edward Snow writes that Bull was either executed or met a violent end upon reaching England, end quote. George Francis Dow, and all of those other less reputable writers all agree with this sentiment. Yes, Dixie Bull made it back to England, but was immediately killed for his sins. And that's how pirate stories are supposed to end, right? The evildoers always lose in the end, and the good guys win. There are only a very few occasions where this isn't the case, and they are notable. Some of those are my favorite stories. But the truth of Dixie Bull is that he is also one of those exceptions. Now, we don't know when Bull returned to England, and we don't know how or by what route he returned to England, but we do know that he made it home. However, there's no record of his death. Quite the contrary, in fact. A few years later, Dixie Bull pops up in the records of none other than the worshipful company of Skinner's. Dixie Bull, nefarious pirate, paid off his indenture, probably with the booty from his raid on Pimaquid, and was thusly admitted into the worshipful company, himself a fellow Skinner. Next time, we're going to return to the drama that is developing between England and the Netherlands in America, between Massachusetts and New Amsterdam, 
and we're going to talk about the establishment of Connecticut and New Hampshire, the foundation of which would introduce war to New England. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and everybody who has helped to support the show, either by signing up to become a patron on Patreon, or leaving us a rating or a review, or just recommending this show. You all make this show possible. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, you can always find us at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.